Good morning. We have two Bible readings this morning from the book of Leviticus. We'll start in chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Our second reading is from Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their senses, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Yes, we are looking at 10 chapters of Leviticus this morning, and no, it won't be painful, I hope. It's one of those things when you look in the Old Testament, you, kinda, you, you do need to read bigger chunks, I think, to appreciate the big picture and the direction and the feel of it, and so that's the reason for looking across 10 chapters and not at a lot of details. There's not a lot of verses in there that you might you know, put up in, in your kitchen, over the kitchen sink as you know, the verse for the day. Yeah. But let's pray that as we think about this part of the Bible, let's pray that we would understand who God is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, we pray that as we think about this part of it, we pray that you would grow our appreciation of who you are as our God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how awkward it can be when young kids talk to adults as if the adults are their peer? I mean, even your kids can you know, tell when that's sort of weird behaviour with no, no kind of awareness of age or experience, no sort of deference at all, it can be really awkward. Sometimes it can be downright rude. As um, kids who were homeschooled for most of primary school, we mixed with other kids like that. Of course, my brothers and I, we, we, never, we never did it. But you can see it, can't you? It's an unintended consequence of just not spending time with peers and maybe an unintended consequence of being the centre of attention with adults fussing over you, an unexpected, unintended 
consequence of your environment and your social setting. And what you can say about little kids, I'm not picking on kids, because what you can say about kids, you can say about adults as well. The circles we mix in shape the way that we behave, what we value, the way we speak. And so, for example, if you think about our Australian context here in Brisbane, there's a lot to factor in. There's this push for being sensitive to political correctness. There's a drive towards gender neutrality, a conscious promotion of environmental responsibility. All these things factor in to the way that we're expected to behave and the way that we are expected to speak and our attitudes. And so when you get it wrong, when you don't conform, when you aren't sensitive to all these things, you come across as awkward and sometimes rude and inappropriate. And I think in our Australian social setting, one of the things I reckon we're increasingly losing sight of is an awareness of who God is. God just isn't factored into the way we make our decisions. The, the term God willing, it's, it's just a kind of a, a quaint quip that's not really given any attention. Prayer is more of a, a last resort and even then maybe not. We just don't factor God in, even into our conversations. I know there is that phrase that gets around, oh my God, you know, shortened down to OMG. But seriously, it's nothing to do with God, is it? No intention to even mention God. And if you kind of pull someone up on that, you're the kind of, you know, the awkward person, the, the, the one that comes out with the weird dad jokes that plays on words and that sort of thing. Australian culture, we display a complete lack of appreciation of our creator God, a lack of awareness of God, a total disregard for God. And if we ever do acknowledge God, it's usually in a kind of self-centered way, you know, what's God going to do for me kind of way. The world we live in, the circles we mix in, the values we absorb make the passage that we're looking at today and that was read for us foreign, unfamiliar. In fact, as you saw the first bit of it being read or heard the first bit of it read, you might have found it confronting with all the blood and the guts that's mentioned in there. Or you might have, the last little few verses that were read, the idea of God judging Aaron's sons like that, it just jars. We are so unfamiliar with who God is. Even in Christian circles, this is like a forgotten part of the Bible. We don't delve in here. And as we do in the next, or this week and in a few weeks' time, over four weeks, look in Leviticus, I've got to confess, I'm not overly familiar with it either, so I will make mistakes. You need to pull me up on them. But it's part of the Bible. It's been preserved for us. And so you'll know what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so as we look at this, you know, deep in the Old Testament, that applies to this, these passages as well. They're important. They help us understand who God is. They help us understand how holy God is, how separate, how set apart from us. They, they help us understand how serious it is when we disobey God, when we ignore him. And as you understand God's holiness and the seriousness of sin, it points you to Jesus the only way that we can be right with God. 
And so reading passages like Leviticus 1 to 10 should shape, correct our understanding of who God is, his standards, his expectations, his righteous anger, his judgment, but also his mercy. As we look at um, um, passages like Leviticus 1 to 10, it should make us more aware of how serious it is that we ignore God, that our nation ignores God, or that we disobey God. It makes us see how important it is to get things right with God. And all, as all that sinks in, we become more grateful for the way God has provided in Jesus. So Leviticus, I think, as you look at it as a whole, it's a warning to us that God is a holy God. And we mustn't behave in a way that's overly familiar or inappropriately familiar with God. It's just not on. But first things first, as we look at these um, chapters, chapters 1 to 10, we need to look at them in their biblical context. And we're looking at this book that's called Leviticus. The reason it's called Leviticus is because it tells us about the work of the Levites, the tribe of Levi, um, representatives from that tribe of Levi that God appointed as priests for his people. Aaron and his descendants, the Aaronic priests, the Levitical priests. That's why this book's called Leviticus. God appointed the sons of Aaron of the tribe of Levi as priests to mediate between God and his people. And as you look at what was just read this morning and look across these 10 chapters, it's all about the sacrifices and the way the priests are to offer those sacrifices. Leviticus, it's the third book in our Old Testament, it sits in the middle of the first five books that, funnily enough, in Greek is called the Pent, you know, Pentagon, Pentateuch, five books. Amazing names here. Um, the Jews look at these five books and they call it the Torah, the law of God or the law of Yahweh. These five books, they record everything that God revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's all written down here. Um, as you look back through Genesis... Another really creative name, Genesis, the beginning. The beginning, as in you first think of creation, but it's also the beginning of God's people, Israel. In Genesis, you see the promises God made to Abraham. You see the makings of the 12 tribes of Israel. And all the way through Genesis, tracing all the way through, there's the problem of sin and the judgment of sin, death, weaving its way through Genesis. Genesis, the beginning of Israel. And then you turn to Exodus. Exodus means going out, you know, Exodus. It's all about the way God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, gathered them round Mount Sinai. And all through Exodus, this problem of sin continues to weave its way through. And so in Exodus records God's instructions for his people, his laws, how God wants his people that he saved, made his own, how he wants them to live. And the construction of the tabernacle is part of that. The tabernacle the tent of meeting, the place where you would meet with God. Um, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was to be in the, the heart of the Israelites' camps. Every time they set up camp, there would be the tent of meeting in the middle. Um, and the sinful people could approach God in this tabernacle. But there's a problem with this. Because sinful people can't approach a holy God. And so have a look at how Exodus finishes and how Leviticus starts. So hopefully you've got Leviticus open in your Bibles. If you just look up into chapter 40 of Exodus, just pick it up in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I take it that's the most holy place in the tent of meeting. Um, the cloud of God's glory 
covers it. And then verse 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you see the problem? Not even Moses can use this tent of meeting. It's a tent of meeting that no one can even enter because God's there. God's holiness is there. God's glory is there. Even Moses couldn't enter. No one's worthy to come into the presence of God. So Exodus closes and then Leviticus opens. If you look at Leviticus 1 verse 1, with God speaking from in the tent of meeting with instructions for how to approach God. And then it lists off these sacrifices that need to be made. God in his generosity provides a way for sinful people to approach him, a holy God. And then, um, don't worry about flipping to this, but if you read the last verse in Leviticus, it goes, these are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. So as we look at chapters 1 to 10, that's the biblical context. This is deep in the Old Testament. This is God's instructions to his people Israel about how they can approach him, a holy God. Um, These were God's instructions through Moses about how the Aaronic or Levitical priest should act. But see... As we read this part of the Old Testament, we're New Testament, New Covenant, same idea, same word, New Covenant Christians, and so we're looking back on all this. These sacrifices that we'll read about, well, they don't actually apply to us. We're looking back from a perspective where we understand everything that Jesus has done. If you, you know, really want to get into Leviticus and you want a really handy commentary to read on Leviticus, there's one in the Bible. So you go to the New Testament and you go to the book of Hebrews and there you have a pretty good commentary on the book of Leviticus. And if you pick up Hebrews in chapter 10, this is one of those passages where we'll come back here. So you might want to do the juggling thing of having a piece of paper in Hebrews and a piece of paper in um, Leviticus. Tear your notice sheet in half if you have to. So Hebrews 10 opens like this. The law is only a shadow. When it talks about the law, it's the Pentateuch. It's that whole system, including these sacrifices. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Hebrews does this thing of comparing the old covenant with what we have in Jesus. It's saying the old way, everything we're going to look at in Leviticus is the shadow. And then it goes on, for this reason, it, the old, can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect or make complete those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. The writer of the Hebrews, the commentary on Leviticus, gives you a filter through which to read Leviticus. These sacrifices you're looking at, they're a shadow of the reality that we have in Christ. If those sacrifices in Leviticus could have dealt with sin, well, they would have stopped offering them. But they have to keep offering them because the problem of sin remains. Um, What the sacrifices do is somehow appease God's wrath. The act of obediently offering the sacrifices appeases God's wrath for a time, but the people then sin again and they have to offer more sacrifices and around it goes. And then if you jump ahead in Hebrews chapter 10 down to verse 11, see what the writer says about Jesus. So Hebrews 10 verse 11, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious rites again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, he's talking about Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
Jesus' death in our place is once for all complete. Jesus can sit down and not offer anything more. He's finished. And it goes on. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he's made everything perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. So as we read Leviticus, as people who know what Jesus has done, what Jesus has finished, Jesus has offered the once for all complete sacrifice for sin. As we read Leviticus, we have that in mind. We know that these sacrifices we're reading about, we don't have to perform. We don't have to put the RSPCA on notice or anything like that. But what we, what we do is, as we read this part of Leviticus, it helps us understand who God is. God hasn't changed. It helps us appreciate the massive significance of Jesus' sacrifice. It helps us see and contemplate the seriousness of sin. And it helps you realise how holy God is and how righteous. So when we read Leviticus chapters 1 to 10 in biblical context, yeah, these chapters, they'll teach us the enormity of, of approaching our holy God and they help us appreciate what Jesus has finished for us on the cross. So let's have a bit of a closer look. Um, this is a school holiday sermon, so we're moving pretty quickly here. There'll be stuff you'll have questions about. You'll have to talk about it after. Let's do the quick flyover. And this is where you do a very naughty thing. And the NIV has headings all the way through. They're not part of the Bible. It's just the editor trying to help make Leviticus a bit easier to read. But let's just look at the headings because it gives you a feeling for the flow. So you do the big flyover of the all 10 chapters. Chapter 1 describes burnt offerings. And there's a bit of a qualification needed here because the actual Hebrew word is just go up. These are the go up offerings. The whole offering burns up and goes up in smoke. There's nothing to, for the priests or the people to share and eat. It's the go up sacrifices or the burnt offerings. We'll come back to um, chapter one in a minute after we've done our flyover. Chapter two describes grain offerings. Chapter three describes fellowship offerings. These are ones which they're not fully consumed. In fact, what happens is part of the sacrifice is burnt and the rest is eaten together. It makes you wonder about the significance of fellowship as God's people. This is a fellowship offering in chapter 3. And then chapter 4 and into chapter 5, it covers sin offerings. And as you run your eyes through it all, you'll notice there's offerings made for unintentional sin. And there's a difference between what the priest has to offer when they sin and what the people have to offer as a member of the community. There's even offerings there for the sin of not speaking up. Um, and you also notice that if you can't afford one of the bigger beasts, you can bring a couple of doves or a couple of pigeons. And it's this little reminder that these sacrifices, it's not about what's being offered, it's about the act of offering. That's what pleases God. And so if you can't afford the big beast, you might offer these two little birds. God desires repentance and obedience, and that's what you're giving. End of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 details the guilt offerings. And then the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 kind of wraps back around again, says stuff about burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, the fellowship offerings, instructions about fat and blood, and then about the priest's share, because the Levitical priests, this is part of their living, these, this sacrificial system. And then you come into chapter 8 and you read about the ordination, the setting apart of Aaron's sons as priests to do all these sacrifices. It takes a week to do that, um, to properly set them apart. Interesting. And then chapter 9, they begin their service. And then finally, chapter 10, the end of our passage for, day, for today, there's this horrible reminder of the problem 
of human sin that continues to weave its way through ever since the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God made a perfect place. Even then, Adam sinned. In Exodus chapter 19, God gathered his people around Mount Sinai, told them how to live, and they went and built a golden calf and worshipped it. And here, as God's laying out the instructions for approaching him with these sacrifices, you have two of Aaron's sons that don't do what they're told. That's the, the flyover of these chapters. Come back now to chapter 1. Um, these, in chapter 1, as you look at the first couple of verses, the way it's introduced, these are, it's talking about sacrifices that any Israelite might bring. But they bring them to the tabernacle and they bring them to the priest to offer. So if you pick it up at verse 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring, it as, your offering, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. And as you run your eyes down, you'll see there's then instructions for the animal from the herd in verse 3 and following. Then it talks about what to do with an animal from the flock in verse 10 and following. And then it tells you what to do with a bird offering in verse 14 and following. Um, it's the act of offering that's more important than what's being offered. And it tells you the ins and outs, the specifics of each. Um, but what you offer does need to be a prime specimen. So if you look at verse 3, if the burnt offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You've got to make sure that, I mean, God is important and what you offer has got to be top notch. But then you look at verse 4. The person bringing the sacrifice, they place their hand on the head of the offering. It's like they push down into it. It's a yeah, if you were to do, um, you know, we've had uh, the ordination of elders, the setting apart of elders, and you lay hands on. If you did it like this, you'd have a few neck issues afterwards, I think. It's this way of identifying with what's being offered, this way of, you know, this is your offering. This is being done on your behalf. You lay your hand on its head. Verse 4 says, You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement. For you, I'm no linguistic expert. I've told you before I studied engineering. That rules me out of most linguistic stuff. But that word atonement, I'm told it's a word that's just been made up in English. Because the word behind it in Hebrew, I mean, how are you going to translate it? I think it might have even been Tyndale that made the word up. You look at the word, it's at-one-ment. Bringing together. Making one. Um, I asked Rian because I was curious... Last night, what's the, what's the Afrikaans Bible say here? And he tells me the word is more the word um, for reconciliation. It's that sort of idea, bringing back together, making restitution. This sacrifice is about making amends in your relationship with God, making it possible for sinful people to approach a holy God. And then verses 5 to 9 describe the detail of what the priest actually does with the sacrifice and what the person does. You'll notice it talks about different parts and washing the dirty parts outside so the priest doesn't have to touch them, all these sorts of details. And then verse 9 finishes with, it is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. I don't know about that last bit, that aroma pleasing to the Lord. This is the going up offering. This is all burnt and I've never smelt meat that's fully burnt and thought, wow, that's a nice smell. I don't think that's the point. 
the aroma that's pleasing to the Lord is the fact that this offering is being made in the way that he has commanded. That's what makes it pleasing to God. What makes this an aroma pleasing to God is the act of the sacrifice, the repentance that comes with it, following the protocol, the instructions that God's given. Um, Then as you keep reading on, verse 10 goes into the offering from the flock and then verse 14, the offering of the birds. Same thing, these burnt offerings. Um, So that's the kind of the zoom in on one of these many sacrifices that need to be offered. It's the volume of the sacrifices that hits home for me, the quantity, the number of times this was repeated. Um, Just these going up offerings, these burnt offerings, if you look ahead into Numbers 28, if you're a real quick Bible flipper, do have a look at Numbers 28 and you'll appreciate from Numbers 28 verse 3, this burnt offering was offered twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. So verse 3 talks about two lambs a year old without defect. That's this regular offering, morning and night, of this burnt offering. Um, verse 5 talks about a grain offering going along with it. Numbers 28 verse 7 talks about a drink offering with each of the land. That's, that's on top of what the people do as well. The volume of these sacrifices is incredible. And then on the Sabbath, in 28, uh, Numbers 28 verse 9, there's two extra animals in this general burnt offering that gets made. And then once a month, there's another bumper. Um, in verse 11, first of the month, two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, each bull with a grain offering, each bull with a drink offering. It's in addition to the regular, once a day. And on and on it goes. Just the volume of sacrifices makes you appreciate what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. This shows you that the problem of sin is still there. Yes, these people are doing what God wants. They're obediently um, repenting, coming back to God. This is appeasing God's righteous anger for a time, but sin's still there. And the offerings just continue. Another spot, just you can tell we're moving very quickly today. Now come to the other end of the passage. Come to the end of chapter 9, verse 22, we'll pick it up in. Just, Just to get an appreciation of this act of making these sacrifices. This is after the priests have been ordained and they're doing their service. So, um... 9 verse 22, then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When that came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. You might think that all this gruesome blood and so on in the sacrifices is horrible, but to the people of Israel at that time, it was amazing. They saw the glory of God. It landed them flat on their face. The amazingness of God. But as I said before, the problem of sin is still there. So you go into chapter 10, or the very next verse, I think it is. 10 verse 1, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their senses, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Did they just get carried away? Did they think that this might somehow make them more important? We've got no idea. But they didn't do what they were told. And so verse 2, So fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 
and verse 3, Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honoured. And Aaron remained silent. You look at that and you think, yeah, our Australian culture could do with a little reflection on Leviticus chapters 1 to 10. It is no small thing to ignore the creator God. That's what he can do. And of course, even our Christian culture could do with reflecting on these chapters, thinking about how holy God is and how important it is to obey. And even you and I, as we think about these verses, we should be caused to reflect on where we stand before God. When we read Leviticus chapters 1 to 10 in their biblical context, these chapters teach us the enormity of approaching our holy God and they help us appreciate the undeserved access that Jesus has made possible. Come back to um, Hebrews 10 and we'll stay in, in Hebrews 10. So Hebrews 10, still reading from where we left off before, if you come down to Hebrews 10 verse 19, the commentary goes on. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the tabernacle, but the real one in heaven, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, as he dies, the curtain in the temple tears, symbolically saying, you can come in to God's presence. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Just keep rolling through chapter 10, verse 22. It is incredible that we can come before God without feeling guilty, with a clear conscience, despite who we are as sinful people. I think in Christian circles, I just think we get too comfortable with this and you read Leviticus and it reminds you how serious and how big and how massive it is. And when you look at this part of Hebrews, yeah, it's very, we can be very quick to think this is talking about when you gather as church. But it's not just then. It's also when you pray to God, as we'll do in a minute. The fact that we can pray to God is only made possible through Jesus and his amazing sacrifice. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was the last sacrifice that ever needed to be offered. Leviticus helps us understand the significance of that. All those sacrifices going on and on, it's finished. Jesus' death in our place, it does away with our need to press our hand in on a sacrifice that's going to be killed. Jesus' act of obedience in our place at once our sin, deals with it, makes propitiation for our sin, appeases God's righteous wrath, pays our debt, does away with our guilt, clears our conscience. But then there's the other alternative to looking to Jesus and trusting in him. If you keep reading in Hebrews 10, you come down to Hebrews 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. As you look through Leviticus, that hits home, doesn't it? How serious it is to ignore God. And it goes on in verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses, died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot and who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant 
that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. That's a very harsh warning, isn't it? But as you read through Hebrews, these warnings in Hebrews, they're ones that we heed. And as God works in us and we heed the warning, he causes us to keep trusting in Jesus and keep persevering. Um, We're going to... Next two weeks, we'll be back in 2 Peter, and then we come back around to Leviticus. So you've got to be the time to have a look back over chapters 1 to 10, and then we'll go 11 to 15 in the next stint. So for now, we'll kind of hit pause. I'll pray, um, and we'll keep talking about these things, hopefully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder of how holy you are. We know that we're not worthy to approach you. Even praying like this is an amazing miracle. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his once-for-all sacrifice. Thank you that though we don't deserve it, you've made it possible for us to be forgiven, to be restored, to be made at one with you. Lord, please grow our trust and our appreciation. Father, we pray too for those around us who we know are ignoring you. Lord, please be merciful. Please point them back to you. Please soften their hearts and help them to see who you really are. Help them to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Saviour too, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.